American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the 1830s, which is a very important decade uh, in, in the, the course of American economic development and American political development. Usually when people talk about this decade, they talk about Andrew Jackson, and, and we're going to do that a little bit. But we're also going to talk about a shift in how Americans think about economic development. Basically, before the 1830s, most Americans think there are two alternatives. Uh, one would be to follow the kind of path that you see blazed by Alexander Hamilton or Henry Clay, where you have a, a government-managed kind of developmentalism. On the other hand, you could follow the path that's suggested by Thomas Jefferson, where you are really seeing the future as one in which there's an uh, agricultural economy and a fairly traditional version of the agricultural economy. There might be some exports to Europe and so on, uh, but essentially you're not going to have rapid change. In the 1830s, we're going to see a shift, and by the end of the decade, the two ideas that are going to be uh, contesting against each other are, on the one hand, again, still Clay's developmentalist ideology uh, with some management on the part of the government, but on the other hand, there's going to be a new idea that says that a deregulated economy can have rapid development, and that, in fact, is going to be more democratic. Uh, than the more regulated version of economic development that you see Clay propounding. That's going to be a very significant shift that we see happening in the, in the 1830s. Now, the great irony of deregulation in the 1830s is that the main architect of the process, the person who's responsible for it more than anyone else, is Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, who was elected president for the first time in 1828, was elected with the massive, overwhelming support of small farmers and others who are anxious about the way in which Clay, Clay's developmental ideology in the American system seems to be taking over the American economy and shaping it in ways that are not favorable to them. Jackson presents himself as someone who is essentially going to turn the policy back to that of Jefferson. He's going to uh, produce or help to produce an independent commonwealth, a commonwealth of small independent farmers. This is classic Jeffersonian policy. Now, what happens between 1829 and 1832, however, is that Jackson comes into conflict with Nicholas Biddle. Nicholas Biddle is the president of the Second Bank of the United States, which is this classic Hamilton or, or Clay-style institution. It regulates the national financial economy, and it also provides a huge amount of lending for investors and entrepreneurs who want to develop um, all kinds of new enterprises uh, along the canal networks and the new harbors that Clay's American system helps provide. These are people who are already wealthy. These are not Jackson supporters. Now, for political reasons of political calculation, Nicholas Biddle decides that 1832 is the right time push for a recharter in Congress of the Second National Bank. It's supposed to, its first charter is supposed to expire in 1836, but he decides to push for one in 1832. And Congress, which is overwhelmingly composed of the sort of people to whom the bank lends money, supports the recharter. So in the summer of 1832, 
the bill approved by the House, approved by the Senate, comes onto Jackson's desk for his signature. And Jackson now has a decision to make. Now, prior to 1832, presidents had rarely used the veto power, and they'd been very reluctant to, to use it in cases where they simply disagreed with a policy that, that Congress was supporting. Jackson, however, vehemently disagrees with the idea of renewing the Second National Bank. And so he decides he's going to veto the recharter bill. And in order to justify his actions, he composes a veto message, which he's going to release to Congress and ultimately to the American public. In this veto message, he argues, first of all, that he doesn't care what the Supreme Court said when it uh, uh, ruled that the Second National Bank was, in fact, constitutional. He thinks it's unconstitutional. And he also argues that the bank is an institution which shows tremendous favoritism. It takes money from some Americans, in fact, from most Americans, and gives it to a few Americans. And he thinks that the real problem with this is that government is involved in that process. He argues that he doesn't have anything against government, and he doesn't have anything against government participating in the economy in some ways, in some ways or others. Um, but what he does have a problem with is a government that sheds its special benefits only on a few Americans. And that, he argues, is exactly what the Second National Bank does. So he issues his veto, he issues his veto message, and a huge storm of conflict breaks out. But he, he is able to hold on to enough loyalists in Congress to uh, prevent the overturning of his veto. And in the fall of 1832, he wins re-election overwhelmingly. So he feels justified in his next step, which is to start to cut off federal funds, uh, which typically flow into the Second National Bank, to starve out the Second National Bank, as it were. So Biddle retaliates by trying to starve off the American economy. He induces a recession. Between 1833 and 1834, there's tremendous pressure on Jackson to back down, but he doesn't. And ultimately, it's Biddle and the Second National Bank that lose. While Jackson was often thought of as somebody who absolutely opposed all banks, I think at some level he understood that a modern economy needs a financial sector in order to function. And in fact, there were alternatives to the Second National Bank, at least when it came to moving credit from lenders to borrowers, from investors to entrepreneurs. And there are two main uh, vehicles that would emerge and uh, bloom in the wake of the deregulation of the American economy, the American financial economy, which Jackson was now in the process of imposing. The first was a set of banks that were already being created by southwestern states, states like Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama. These banks lent money to planters, taking mortgages on land, but especially on slaves. And they sold bonds, bonds which were backed by the credit of their states, by the state of Mississippi, state of Alabama, etc. They sold these bonds on worldwide financial markets in New York, but especially in London and Amsterdam. So in other words, investors in those places where slavery didn't exist were buying bonds that were backed by mortgages on slaves. And the cash, uh, or the, the credit really, would flow from those financial centers into the booming cotton economy of the Southwest. 
So that was one thing, uh, one alternative to the Second Bank of the United States. The other alternative was what came to be called the pet banks. Banks all across the country which were run by political cronies of Jackson. These were the banks into which the government started to pour its deposits. And those deposits became the basis for lending on the part of those banks. And those banks began to lend out money at a great rate, almost as fast as the Southwestern banks. As this flood of credit hits the national economy after 1833, a huge financial boom begins to build up. Economic activity increases rapidly. All across the country, people are starting new businesses. In the southwestern cotton states, they're buying more slaves. About 250,000 enslaved people are moved from the older states to the new states between 1830 and 1837. In the northwest, they're starting to embark on all kinds of new infrastructure projects. Across the country, the economy grows by about 6% per year in the first and middle parts of the 1830s. So it looks by 1836 as if Jackson's deregulation of the economy has in fact led to a kind of prosperity that's without precedent in U.S. history. So by early 1837, as Jackson's getting ready to leave office at the end of his second term, and he's going to be replaced by his political lieutenant, Martin Van Buren, who's won election in, in uh, uh, November of 1836. By this point, Jackson can probably look around at the American scene uh, and, and feel as if his actions have helped to produce national economic prosperity. Now, the reality by early 1837 was actually a great deal more complicated. We'll talk about that in a, section, in, in a second. Uh, but the one thing that I didn't want to leave out was the fact that Jackson had also embedded in the American mind, as it were, this idea, an idea which would have tremendous consequences over time and which still has lots of adherence, the idea that deregulation of the economy leads, first of all, to prosperity, and second of all, that it's an essentially democratic process. Now, we can find all sorts of ways in which the truth is actually a lot more complicated. Often deregulation goes along uh, with giving help and giving assistance to particular kinds of interests, like the people who ran the so-called pet banks. But that set of ideas would be very persistent, and we still see them, uh, we still hear them in the present day. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.